Welcome to Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs, presented by SpeechTherapyPD.com. This podcast is designed for the adult medical speech-language pathologist. Most of our audience members work in settings such as acute care hospitals, private practice, outpatient hospital clinics, and inpatient rehabilitation hospitals. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com and is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. The content of this course is based on the research and experience of the presenters. The listener is responsible for researching to determine if the information and skills taught are appropriate for their clients, students, or patients. SpeechTherapyPD.com does not necessarily endorse, recommend, or favor the information shared, nor any of the claims, opinions, statements, offers, or services made by the presenter. Hello and welcome, everyone. My name is Renee Garrett, and I am your SpeechTherapyPD.com podcast host for Brainstorms, Functional Neuro Rehab for SLPs. Before we get started, we have a few items to alert you to. Each episode is 60 minutes and will be offered for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. So joining us tonight is Jackie Rodriguez, and here are the financial and non-financial disclosures. So Jackie's financial disclosures are that she is an employee of Health Pro Heritage and Emory Health. Statements in this presentation do not represent the views of these companies, and Jackie will receive an honorarium for this podcast. Her non-financial disclosure is that she is the owner of the Instagram account at unlearnwithme.theslp. My financial disclosures are that I am a paid employee of a large health system in the Commonwealth of Virginia, as well as paid adjunct faculty for Old Dominion University and James Madison University, and I do receive financial reimbursement as host of this podcast. And for non-financial disclosures, I am the current secretary for the Communication Disorders Foundation of Virginia. Questions can be written in the chat box or the Q&A box tonight, and we will try to hold those until the end of the presentation. Without further ado, we welcome our guest, Jackie Rodriguez. Jackie is a bilingual speech-language pathologist based in Atlanta, Georgia, She received her master's degree from Georgia State University. Additionally, Jackie holds a BA in Spanish and a BSED in Communication Sciences and Disorders. Jackie specializes in the ethical assessment and treatment of culturally and linguistically diverse clients across the lifespan. She has extensive experience evaluating bilingual children as a diagnostician. As a former travel speech-language pathologist, Jackie has significant experience working in skilled nursing facilities, assisted living facilities, and independent living. Jackie is a recipient of the ASHA Distinguished Early Career Professional Award, and she serves as a lead mentor for the Bilingual Empowerment through Allied Mentorship Program, the BEAM SLP program. So welcome, Jackie. Good to see you again. Good to see you too. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, me and you both. (laughs) It's always a pleasure to chat with you. And so I kind of want to jump right in because we have a lot to cover tonight. 
So we're going to be talking today about cultural considerations in adult cognitive and dysphagia management. And we have just a lot of avenues we could go down with this. But I think to start, what are some considerations for assessing patients from other countries? I think that's just such a a hot topic right now. And even though being in the field, we've seen this quite a lot. I think it's just becoming more talked about, which is good because it's such a great learning opportunity for everyone. Yeah. So let's start with talking about interpreters, because I think that so many SLPs don't really have a good understanding of both the federal laws that protect how we interact with patients who do not speak English, as well as what ASHA has to say. So we'll start with the federal laws. The first one is going to be Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so what this law basically says is that it protects patients in facilities with programs or activities that receive federal funds from discrimination that's based on race, ethnicity, or national origin. So if you go to the Department of Health and Human Services Language Access Plan website, the term that they use for patients who speak another language other than English is limited English proficiency patients. So on the pediatric side, we'll hear like dual language learners, English language learners, but for adults, it's limited English proficiency. And so basically this law says that if you're in a facility that receives any sort of federal funds, so that could be Medicare, Medicaid, you are legally obligated to provide interpreters for assessment. Another thing that's really important because I don't think people realize how important this law is, is that this website actually has a means for you to go through and report a facility or a provider for not providing access. And so I think a lot of times we get away with knowing that our patients who are limited English proficiency speakers don't have a lot of education or aren't really familiar with the U.S. healthcare system, but you run the risk of having a patient who's got a family member that's a lawyer or who's got a family member that understands English and is very well-versed in the U.S. healthcare system who might file a complaint. So I always try to keep that in the back of my mind. And I also make sure that my documentation supports that I did everything that I could to have access to an interpreter. Another federal law that governs how we work with limited English proficiency people is section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. And so this law says that healthcare organizations should take reasonable steps to provide meaningful access for limited English proficiency patients and that we cannot discriminate against these patients. So I always like to start there. So another thing that we should consider as well as private health insurances also usually have standards for the use of interpreters and that you can end up getting a denial for insurance if your documentation does not show that you utilized an interpreter. And then ASHA, to quickly summarize, ASHA's stance on uh, interpreters. So ASHA also says that, you know, ethically, we have a duty to try to use interpreters. We 
should exhaust all means to find a professional interpreter. And then in the case that it is a rare language, that there is no one in the community that we can find to serve as an interpreter, only then can you use family members. But I see this misinterpreted a lot. So I'll see SLPs say, well, I couldn't find an interpreter, so I use the family member. But did you try to find an interpreter? Have you initiated a conversation with your facility about providing you access? Have you educated your facility about these laws and how these facilities are violating federal laws by not subscribing to some sort of interpreter subscription to be able to provide these patients that kind of access. So I think that's a great starting point for some considerations that we need to make when we're working with people who don't speak the same language as us. Yeah. And I think you brought up two really great points. One about documentation, because that is also not only is it, um, you know, kind of an insurance requirement to make sure that we've done that, but also from a liability standpoint as a professional, that's an ethical consideration because if we've violated federal law by not doing that, and even if you did provide the service, you still need to make sure you're documenting because we all know as practicing communication science disorders professionals, whether it's SLPs or audiologists, our documentation is basically the roadmap of what we did. And even Mm -hmm. if it's sort of a a mundane detail, it's really not when it comes down to should there be some sort of legal action or a liability suit, you need to make sure that you're covering yourself, but also providing that ethical responsibility to your patients. So like we were kind of chatting before we started tonight about bigger health systems and how we, like for the one I work for, we have this contract with a computer-based interpreter service. And that's great, but sometimes we don't always have the correct dialect or the correct variation in that person's language, depending on their country and their origin. And so, yeah, we get kind of put in these sticky situations where if we don't know technically what we're supposed to be doing and and how to provide that access and how to legally say, okay, because I've seen people who will even go in and be like, oh yeah, well, I speak French. I can totally interpret for the patient. And I'm like, but you're the provider. I don't think <laughs> that's probably not your best option. Right. Now, if you're getting basic health information in an emergent situation, maybe to gather information, but not to interpret for physicians or other medical professionals that come into the room. And so I think those are two really great points that you made right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I also think that when you think about things like dysphagia, which is such a complicated topic, and even cognition, when you're ex- breaking down cognition and aphasia to some of your patients, like even for us, we have had extensive training in how to explain these disorders to families. And now like, imagine that you weren't a speech language pathologist and someone's asking you to explain that to someone else. That's going to be really hard. And so when you're asking family members to explain these complicated processes, we're really doing our patients a disservice. So, yeah. And, you know, when we say using an interpreter and we're talking about people from other countries, again, we're looking at these dialectal things that may not be widespread in in the general knowledge right? Because you and I have chatted a lot about like social determinants of health and health literacy. And those topics kind of delve into dialectal differences. But, you know, again, what we were kind of chatting about before 
before we started tonight was different areas from Central America and other some Asian countries where the dialectical differences are such that the interpreters that we have available professionally who are getting paid to provide the service don't have that particular dialect in their repertoire. And so I think mm-hmm. the thing that you brought up about when you were a traveling SLP is a really great point, if you can kind of touch back on that and share that. Yeah, so I have, as um, Renee mentioned, I have experience working as a travel speech language pathologist. And my last assignment was in an area in California that had a very large um, tech population. So that is a native indigenous Mexican group of people, ethnic group of people. And we ran into this issue sometimes where the dialect invariances of, of Mixteco or Mixteco vary by community. So based on the community that you live in, that can contribute to differences and that can cause problems with using an interpreter. And so some things that you can do from your end, once you gather that information about knowing where the patient is from, I always, you know, introduce, like, let's say that even with with Spanish, you have a lot of uh, variances. So you might want to say, okay, I am a speech language pathologist. I'm about to do an assessment of language. I have a patient with me that's Spanish speaking from Venezuela, or I have a Spanish speaking patient from whatever city. If you could get the city or the state in whatever country that they're from, that and then give that to the interpreter. And if you get a good interpreter, they're gonna going to say, you know, if I say something that you don't understand, let me know. I could say it in a different way. So I do think that's one thing that we can do to kind of bridge the gap. Sometimes, like you mentioned, we don't always have the interpreter that is best for that particular uh, rare or less commonly spoken dialect, but we can also gather information to help prepare our interpreter to make sure that we're giving them the best access. And, And then one other thing that I wanted to add to, so going back to documentation. So when you have those patients that speak a very rare dialect, so I would document it as attempted to, you know, whatever your interpreter services attempted to contact X language speaking interpreter X number of times was not able to, there was not an interpreter available. Services were provided with X, Y, and Z accommodation. So then you're demonstrating in your notes the things that you did to help accommodate that person when the interpreter services were not available. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think, again, kind of going back to health literacy and just those multiple barriers that we see, even with our English speaking patients and our some of our communities, you know, we're trying to break down these complex diagnoses, especially for mm-hmm. things like dysphagia, where we're trying to explain that to the average everyday person who grew up speaking English. And so how do we break that down for people who not only don't speak the language as a first language or have limited English proficiency, but also have multiple barriers to health literacy. Yeah. So I think that that is a skill that I've developed with time through trial and error. And what I've found is really helpful is so, you know, we start off with what country the patient is. I ask them about their educational status. How much school do you have? And then, you know, they might mention a couple years, six or seven years, 10 years, whatever. Um, Can you read and write? So I'm, you know, 
I'm thinking if I'm able to access um, handouts or materials in their language, is that going to be an appropriate resource? Do they have the literacy skills to be able to read um, any resources? And then also, I might even ask, like, tell me a little bit about your family. Do you have children that live here? Do your children speak English? So um, getting to know that as well, because because sometimes I'll have patients who will say, um, you know, if I didn't have like a handout that was readily available in their language, they'll say it's fine, print it out and give it to my child because then they'll read it and they'll know. Um, now going back, so we've collected that information. So we've got a patient who um, is from a country other than the United States, has uh, minimal education and cannot read and write. The next thing that I'm going to kind of informally assess is I'm going to kind of see what, how familiar they are with the organs, the major organs in our body that are connected to swallowing. So I will never forget one time I had a patient who was Spanish speaking and I'm like thinking that I'm doing this amazing job of explaining dysphagia to him. And I used the word esophago, which is esophagus in Spanish. And he was like, no, no, no. No, it's esophago. I said estomago. No, it's it's not esophagus. It's stomach. And he's thinking that like I'm saying the wrong thing. And I realized that like he didn't know what the esophagus was. So we had to take a step back and explain that like so the esophagus is this tube that connects your throat to your stomach. And even things that, you know, might not seem like you know, we might assume everyone knows, like, do you know what your lungs do? Do you know what your stomach does? So yeah, we know that food goes into our stomach, but do you know that you have acid in your stomach that breaks it down? Do you know that you have muscles that move in your esophagus and your stomach to help break this down? And then from there, if they don't have that understanding of the organs, they're not going to understand swallowing. So sometimes you really have to take a step back. I actually spoke about this on Instagram, how I had had a patient who's from another country who I'm full-time PRN. So I'm always kind of like coming in behind the other speech therapist. And I had read in the last note that they had had an education session about the free water protocol. And so I came in and I'm like just thinking that I'm going to do a quick little summary of the last session. And I'm asking him to tell me what they talked about and didn't have a lot of recall. And so I spent a whole second 45 minute session, like just thoroughly breaking down what the lungs do, what the esophagus does. And then he was able to much better understand like what aspiration is. And I even, you know, did some quizzing. So I had him, I, sh- I showed him, I like to use the Tactus Therapy app that has those images of like the different parts of the body. Mm-hmm. I also had another image of the lungs and the stomach. And so I was like, you know, show me which of these organs is the one that we use for breathing, which one is the one that we use for digesting our food. And then we were able to get so much better carryover. So that's another thing to look at that sometimes when there is limited health literacy and these patients don't have a very strong understanding of their body, that sometimes your therapy is going to move a little bit slower because you've got to spend much more time educating. One thing that I will see too with management of chronic diseases that we are so quick for people who are not English speakers, for people who are not born in the United States, for people of color, we're very quick to be like, oh, well, this person is non-compliant. 
And we don't really assess to see like, well, why does this person not, maybe this person just truly doesn't understand the underlying disease process. Like maybe no one has actually sat down and really explained what diabetes is. And that if we get better health literacy for diabetes management, then we lessen the risk of having another stroke. Then we lessen the risk of dysphagia or aspiration pneumonia. So um, incorporating the entire body. Um, And I I feel like I'm, you get me started and like, I never stop. (laughs) Love that because you and I have done um, health literacy stuff before. And I think we have a similar mindset in that I worked at a very rural setting um, that's now more of an up and coming area. But when I first started, I saw a lot of the same thing and it wasn't necessarily um, bilingual patients. Sometimes, yes, but then also just the general population who, like you mentioned, doesn't understand how their basic body functions work. Um, And there's a lot of barriers to health literacy that we have to be mindful of and, and work through as could because part of our job is counseling and education. And so um, I think that's a great point because that is a overarching concept, not just for uh, people who have English maybe limitations, but, you know, we also have people who um, maybe have some health literacy, whether it's a um, limited reading, maybe they didn't go beyond a certain level of education because they like, like, you know, where I worked, we had people that were farm workers and manual laborers who had to stop school to help support their family when they were in eighth grade. And that was as high education as they got. And so Mm -hmm. we we do have to keep that in mind for assessment and treatment because our, we know that our health education, literacy, um, or literature that we provide or written education we provide to our patients is written on about a ninth grade level. And so for some people, that's not going to be accessible. And even when you're considering, oh, it's great. Now they have that in Spanish. I don't even know what the grade level equivalent would be for what they provide in Spanish, just because it's provided in another language doesn't mean it's appropriate. Yes. And that's a really good point. And I found that a lot of time monolingual SLPs don't really understand that, that so often when I like try to Google handouts in Spanish, the level of education that the handouts are written in is just way too high for the literacy level that my patients have. So yeah, that's really important. And I think too, that that's why I spend a lot of time doing education verbally with our patients and providing demonstrations because some Sometimes that access to literature is just not the best way of educating our patients. I know that like sometimes I've talked about this and I've gotten pushed back for like doing things outside of my scope. But when you have patients who have a cognitive disorder or a patient that has a communication disorder like aphasia and cannot understand, I think that gives us a great opportunity to also um, help advocate and help them understand some of these other diseases that they have. So I'll do things like I'll just go to like WebMD or Healthline and we'll just Google whatever their diseases are and we'll read like a general statement and then we'll go through it and I'll tell my patients you know what questions do you have for the doctor and I help them come up with a list of things so that I can make sure that they're understanding and even if they can't read I'll write the questions down and I'll say okay bring this to your doctor and tell him to read it and talk over it with you 
I've also like gone through sometimes our diabetes educators will give our patients books on diabetes management. And there will be pages that te- that show you how to calculate carbs. If you've got a patient with cognitive deficits that can't do those mathematical calculations, that's a really great functional activity to work on. Can they calculate managing their carbs? Do they know how much insulin they need to give themselves based on how much food they just ate? Um, if they're on like sliding scale insulin, even sequencing for how to use a blood pressure machine, sequencing the steps to how to test your blood sugar, all things like that. So I think that's another great way to incorporate health literacy from the perspective of cognition. So like, are we teaching a patient about their health, their underlying etiology? No, we're not. We're looking at the cognitive aspect of it, but we're using their own health as the vehicle for practicing these cognitive skills. Are you taking advantage of our new amazing feature, the certificate tracker? The free CE tracker allows you to keep track of all of your CEUs, whether they are earned with us at speechtherapypd.com or through another provider. Simply upload your certificate to your registered account and you're all set. So come join the fastest growing CE provider, speechtherapypd.com. Yeah, what more functional thing really can you do? Because when it comes to cognitive things like that too, medication management is another thing that we tend to do a lot of, especially in now that I'm an outpatient. But I did that in inpatient rehab too. We looked a lot Mm -hmm. at just the patient being able to sort their own medications and maybe utilizing a pillbox. But then also now I do a task where it's more like sabotage where we can set it up, but say the dog bumped into the table or the cat jumped on whatever. And now this pillbox is on the floor and you need three days more. And can you go back and fix it? I'm all about the the functional stuff. Absolutely. The other kind of thing I jumped back into when you were talking about uh, the Spanish available educational materials, I think we, yes, for sure, there a lot of times they are way higher level than they need to be. But then we also, so I, I feel like there's a split. We either have really high level or we have elementary school age level with these pictures of children or teddy bears or um, rainbows or what, you know, more of like a child's illustration, a children's book illustration. And so that sometimes has been um, the materials that we've had available to us. And it's like, it's not appropriate. It's not appropriate. You know, your 86-year-old grandmother doesn't, well, maybe she does. Maybe she does want to look at rainbows and hearts at that point. But for the most part, it's just not appropriate. Mm -hmm. And so I think bridging that that gap is really important. Mm -hmm. And we kind of jump back into um, the use of interpreters, especially in the hospital setting. There's a lot of ethical things that surround that. But then... um, you know, kind of, kind of jumping way, way back to the beginning. But what if the patient refuses? Because some people are not comfortable using someone outside of their family or outside of their, um, their comfort zone. Say they're there with a significant other or a really close family friend that they've known and trust. Because we know with health literacy issues in general that trust is a barrier. Mm-hmm. Um, based on people's life experience and their um, their cultural exposure. 
Mm-hmm. So um, one of the facilities that I work in, they have a form that um, the patient can sign that basically just endorses that, you know, I'm agreeing to not use an interpreter or to use a family member. And that can just kind of be another um, piece of information that you document in your notes, like that, you know, it was reviewed with the patient that um, we're suggesting the use of a an interpreter to provide the most accurate interpretation of medical information. So this person can have a good understanding of their health. The person um, was able to understand and continue to decline interpreter services, something like that, documenting that. Um, a great question that I got on Instagram was where do we draw the ethical line when we've got a patient who has cognitive, um, cognitive disabilities and, and, and might not be able to make that determination for themselves. So let's say we've got a patient with severe cognitive impairment and the family member is, um, it's maybe the spouse that is saying, no, it's fine. I can interpret. Um, so I've had that situation happen several times and, and it ends up being that um you have the interpreter you are like okay well I'll have you know the family member interpret and then you could tell that like the family member is just not they are not <laughs> interpreting what you're saying. Um so in that situation I would definitely get your management involved um because you're gonna want to look at it's an issue of like who is the POA, who's the decision maker for this patient. Um, sometimes that could potentially be out of our control. Again, documentation. Um, I think that, you know, also you can this is hard, but I feel like you could potentially justify um maybe instead of like so sometimes like I'll go to the patient's room and then I get the interpreter on the phone or um, I'll walk in with the interpreter. I'll like, um, you know, have call the interpreter if it's an in-person interpreter to come to the room, but maybe just show up with the interpreter. And then from there, you know, um, and then just, you know, start doing your session and mm-hmm. see, it might be that like, if the interpreter is actually there with you, once you start that session with that family member, maybe the family member will realize, oh, well, you know, the burden's off me to have to interpret. And this is actually helpful. Or, you know, you go in with the interpreter, the patient is, patient's family member is still, you know, declining interpreter services. Now you have a witness. So I walked and then again, strong documentation. So entered the room with the interpreter. Um, family continues to decline interpreter services. Um, so then, you know, we, ha- we have to respect our patient's rights. And just like how the patient has the right to refuse everything, they also have the right to refuse an interpreter. And so, you know, sometimes that ends up with poor health, health outcomes, but, you know, the onus is, is on us to make sure that we're doing everything that we can. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, just because that one patient refused an interpreter, well, I'm not even gonna, you know, get an interpreter for this next person because I keep running into this problem. Nope. Every single time you have to actually get that deny that decline from the um, patient before you say, no, we're not going to use an interpreter. Yeah. And so just thinking about, you know, assessment and when we're dealing with things like, um, cognition, stroke, brain injury, and and those considerations for assessing a patient while using an interpreter. Mm -hmm. Is this interpreter trained 
in the medical aspect, one, and two, you know, we have the responsibility to assess in the person's native language, which that's a whole nother, that's a whole other thing, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so kind of what, you know, can you talk about what some of those condition or con, um, considerations are for assessing a patient with an interpreter? Yeah, just, absolutely. Just assessment in general. Mm-hmm. So um, we, blah, 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 can't talk. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> right before we met, I um, actually was looking through some of the evidence. And um, I think, so the answer to your question is when I do um, assessment with an interpreter, I don't do anything standardized. I only do informal assessment. So um, I might give the patient a list of words. I'm going to choose words that are in their environment that I know that they're familiar with um, mm-hmm. so that we don't run into, does this person not understand this word because it's not culturally appropriate to them? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll look at recall. I'll look at their um, are they ans- able to answer like biographical information? I might show them a picture, have them kind of talk me through it. Um, but there are, at least with Spanish, so there are um, tests that have been interpreted into other languages. And it is just that they have been interpreted into mm-hmm. other languages, not developed in Spanish. Um, so some examples are the slums. There's like an absolutely horrible yes. interpretation of the slums that's easy to print from online. Every time I print that out and then do it for my patients, I'm like, whoa, whoa, because the Spanish is so bad in it that I'm like, I get thrown off. Um, I can't read from it. I have to make sure that like <laughs> I'm actually um, saying it correctly. And so again, that's why I don't use a lot of standardized assessment. Um, The MMSC has been um, interpreted to Spanish, the mini cog, the clock drawing test, and I think that's all. So so this study was done by um, Torres Castro et al. in um, 2022, so last year. And what they did was they just did a review of all of the studies that have been done for um, the Spanish test. So the mini cog, the clock drawing test, and the mini mental state examination. So the MMSC. And what they found was that the um, sensitivity of these tests varied drastically by country and very drastically by um, level of education. So a lot of these studies that have been done, particularly on the MMSC, looked at what the threshold was for um, based on education. So, you know, when you give a cognitive assessment, usually you'll have like, like I think the MOCA is like 26 out of 30 for Mm -hmm. someone who has like um, more than a high school education. And then like, it's a little bit less if it's less than a high, they have to make like, I don't know, like 24 or something like that. If it's um, less than high school education. And so they found that with these different populations and depending on what they were looking at, if they were looking for like, if they're assessing dementia, early stage dementia, advanced dementia, 
the thresholds were drastically varied based on country, but based on educational status. And so what this tells us is that these tests really are not valid for these populations that we work with. And then another important thing to consider is that these tests were done with monolingual Spanish speakers and monolingual English speakers. Mm -hmm. To my knowledge, I didn't see anything about our bilingual English-Spanish folks, which oftentimes in, um, you know, hospital settings, many times your patients are not bilingual. They're monolingual speakers of other languages. Um, So we really shouldn't be using these tools to um, get any sort of a standard score and really make a determination about if there is um, cognitive impairment actually happening. Um, We're going to want to do a lot of informal things. Um, We're going to caregiver um, uh, interviewing is really important. Whenever I do an assessment in another language, like I always make sure I call the family. I know that sometimes we just don't have enough time in our day to do that for all of our patients to get a good baseline. But with with our families, um, with our patients who are limited English proficiency patients, you really want to make sure that you're calling the family because um, these standardized tests, at least for cognition, are really not great. Um, With aphasia, there is the um, bilingual aphasia test, which again, is a translated test. It's, there's the English version and it's translated to like a million different languages. Um, I personally have my gripes with that test as well, because it like, it's not really a bilingual test. Like you'll have the English version. And then like one time I was going to give it in Tagalog using an interpreter, but the Tagalog version is literally just in Tagalog. There, like, there's not an ink, like, there will be um, a target. Maybe it's looking at, I don't know, picture identification. But then underneath, there's not the English um, translation of what you're asking the patient for. So I can't ethically give that assessment um, as opposed to like, you know, another test that um, maybe it's bilingual. You read the English part, then the um, interpreter interprets the Tagalog part. So um, I think that could Potentially, um, I, I don't have um, a resource right now that analyzes the sensitivity for that test, but I can definitely see how if you're not a, a person that actually speaks the other language, how administering that test can be really um, confusing. And then I know that for Spanish, there is a dysarthria standardized test. I've never even used this test in English, but it is um, also offered in Spanish. And that one is a like literal translation. Like it's, it's not a great test. It looks at phonemes that are present in English and are not present in Spanish. And it's asking your your Spanish speakers to produce these phonemes that don't exist. So that's, um, you know, another consideration. So lots of informal assessment. And I, I think that, you know, if you're someone who, um, works with large populations of language uh, limited English proficiency speakers, you're probably used to doing a lot of informal assessment too. Um, And I think too, just like gathering information about the types of things that your patients do culturally and being able to incorporate that into your assessments as well. If you know that, you know, perhaps you have a um, population of 
whatever language speakers that you're seeing frequently. And you know that that community is really big into sports, um, maybe soccer. So maybe you can just casually ask that person to tell you, um, show them a picture of a, um, a soccer game, see if they can um, describe that to you. So even just like learning those things that are important to these cultures that you're working with, you can incorporate that cultural knowledge into your assessment to give um, criteria that's more culturally appropriate. So even if it's not normed, um, you're using something that's informal, that that is um, relevant to their cultural interests. Well, and it's so funny because I can remember being a new clinician the first time we ever got um interpreted Spanish language treatment materials, I was like, oh, this is amazing. And I had just enough Spanish in high school and college where I looked at it and I was like, I don't think that's actually, and I'm not bilingual by any stretch. Um, Mm -hmm. That that would be a a great goal, but um, (laughs) I knew enough to know that those were not the best materials. And again, what I found was it was adult aphasia and cognitive materials for treatment but the illustrations were childlike they were geared Mm -hmm. towards the pediatric population and so there was still that gap there and Mm -hmm. then um, one of the interesting things that and this this happened I probably was in either my CF or I had just finished my CF and I had a native um, gentleman who'd had a stroke who was from India and was vegetarian. And back when he was, so um, he had had a couple of modified barium swallows at the hospital. And then I did a fees on him just to update his swallow study. And because he was vegetarian, he was on pureed, which again, you know, he had poor dentition. And I think at home, he he ate a lot of things like lentils and rice and things that were softer and blended mm-hmm. they put the lentils with the rice. And so it was a different texture of what we would assume as a regular texture diet where we're thinking Mm -hmm. like steak, a pork chop, whatever. And he was already on something that was a a little bit different texture for his culture and his, um, his diet at home. And again, paired with the poor dentition. So he was on a vegetarian puree diet, but our kitchen staff at that time because this was over 10 years ago they Mm -hmm. weren't they didn't have a point of reference for this it wasn't something they saw regularly and so they kept sending salads and raw vegetables because it was vegetarian (laughs) right it's it's really cool to be able to have these conversations now and think back on those things that at the time I was like really guys like what (laughs) but it wasn't it wasn't something that we were really focusing on and and discussing a lot in the medical communities Mm -hmm. and definitely not so much maybe behind the scenes in our field but I don't think like you mentioned at the top of the the top of the hour that we were discussing it in great length um for community Mm -hmm. resource and for community education so I think that um we've come we have a long ways to go but we've 
we've certainly made some strides in that we're not serving our vegetarian patients, just raw carrots. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And I think um, today I actually did a presentation for a a group of dietetic interns. And that's another thing that I like to talk about as well, that when we're treating dysphagia, it's so easy to just print off a quick little handout that says, you know, soft and bite-sized diet, here's the foods that you can eat. And then your patient gets it and they're like, any of these foods. So they have no guidance for their diet. So they just go back to eating what they were eating before. So one thing that I've started doing again, more informally is I'll sit down with my patients and I'll ask them to tell me what they eat. And even if they don't know the English word for it, like you could always have record them saying it with Google translate and see Mm -hmm. if you can get it to come up so that you can Google a picture of it. And then you eyeball it, you ask them some questions. So, you know, that I see that this is a stew dish and um, tell me a little bit about the meats that are in this stew dish. Um, Does it fall apart with a fork? Do you really have to chew it? Is it like made tender? And then you give recommendations based on that conversation that you have. And I always try to make sure that my patients have like at least five meals that they, you know, eat on a regular basis that are culturally appropriate for their diets that they Mm -hmm. can bring home instead of um, these, these pre-made list. Um, So, you know, there's definitely a lot that we're not considering, like you mentioned with um, dysphagia and, and um, culture and how we need to be cognizant of uh, how culture plays into dysphagia because so much of our culture surround, it revolves around food. Yeah. And I mean, that's true. I think across the United States too, and, you know, most, and, and I'll say just because of more like I grew up in Virginia and my family's from North Carolina and it was more like Southern culture where like literally everything you did involved a meal. And so I think we Mm -hmm. see that a lot in our, in our geographic region for our patients, uh, the importance of food and the importance of that um, culture within this part of the United States. And so that's another, another overarching concept for a lot of cultures a lot of their family celebrations and holidays revolve around a meal of some sort or a food of some sort that's traditional or culturally um, appropriate. Um, And so we do, yeah, we do have, again, a long ways to go, but we're making good strides and being mindful of that and Mm -hmm. and trying to make that part of our treatment. And um, like you mentioned, having that Google translator or or whatever to um, interpret what the the food is that this patient is this important to this patient and, and is it um, compliant with uh, the recommendation, but also you mentioned this earlier too, people have been really quick in the medical community to label a patient as non-compliant and sometimes non-compliant isn't that it's either not appropriate or it's a choice that they just don't from a quality of life standpoint, they have the right to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's a really, um, important consideration as well. And then, Absolutely. yeah. And when we're thinking about in my brain, I'm jumping to a different topic because you, that's okay. You and I have worked together before. So, you know, my brain is like that. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just thinking about like the dialectical dialectal dialectal. I can say this word <laughs> dialectal speakers uh-huh. in English and just that density of the dialect and how that affects things like dysarthria and other motor speech disorders, because that was a question that came up 
but I had it come up with uh, a patient of mine who is Jamaican and it wasn't, Mm -hmm. it's not that she doesn't speak English, but her dialect in combination with the dysarthria that she had as a result of her stroke was impactful. Yes. Yes. And let's talk about that because I'm not sure that all the listeners know what dialect density is. So um, dialect density was actually coined, I always like to brag, by one of my professors who (laughs) I actually worked under her um, research study, Dr. Julie Washington. She has done a lot of research on African-American English in children. And she looks at the way that African-American children have access to literacy skills because of the density of their dialect. And so when we say dialectal density, so we're really comparing um, non-mainstream dialects of English to the mainstream white American English dialect. And so we look at how dense, so how many, the, the amount of grammatical phonetic features of the language you have in your dialect. Um, so for example, my husband uses features of African American English. He'll use like syntactic features of African American English, like the habitual B. So for example, um, he likes curb your enthusiasm and he might say something like, Oh my gosh, I'll be dying watching those episodes. So meaning that every time he watches those episodes, he's laughing. It's hilarious, but he doesn't have a lot of the phonetic features of African American English in his um, speech. Whereas here in, in, Atlanta, we have like a really interesting mix of um, like old school. We've had a lot of gentrification happen here. So you've got your um, black folks that were have been here in Atlanta since when Atlanta was truly still a majority black city. You have folks who have moved in from rural parts of Georgia who have more of that like African-American English plus densely Southern American English accents. Um, And then you'll have people like me who um, are Black but don't really speak with African-American English. And so um, sometimes what ends up happening is that these patients who have greater dialectal density, um, they might not, prior to their stroke, might not have been very intelligible from someone who does not speak African-American English. And then they end up having a stroke and have dysarthria. And um, what's really going on is, is um, the dysarthria is maybe intensifying the dialectal density. And so that's in, impacting their intelligibility. And, and I see that a lot at one of the hospitals that I work at right now. And I've noticed it because I'll ask my patient, I'll say, well, um, it will do a lot of like rating. So I'll have them rate how clear their speech was on a scale of one to five, and then I'll rate it on a scale of one to five. And I'll notice that my patient is telling me, no, like, I mean, I'm not really noticing that. I feel like I can understand myself fine. And then that's when you really, again, want to get that family member involved. So um, the lines can be kind of blurred sometimes if there's cognitive deficits on top of dysarthria. So is it a cognitive thing that this person just is unaware that they're unintelligible or is it truly like no they're just a dialect speaker with high dialect density and you're associating this with the dysarthria um so asking the family member are you struggling to understand your family member um so that's a really important consideration and then that could happen you know with african-american english but also with other dialects um 
And even to your point, Renee, we, I had a woman who was from um, Cameroon. So a lot of African countries speak pigeons. So, mm-hmm. you know, we have a Creole, which is like combinations of multiple languages and then pigeons, which is like a step below where we're getting to the point where it's almost another language, but it's still very deeply tied in with English. So I had a lady who was a Cameroonian English speaker and same thing. It took a couple of sessions with me working with her. The family kept saying like, no, she understands English. She understands English. And the staff was like, no, she doesn't. Like, we don't understand her. Like what is going on? And then we realized that like her English was a pigeon and our, it was very different from American English. And even just talking with the daughter, it took me having several conversations and the daughter had told me that she had a sister that came to the United States from Cameroon. And she was like, her sister had called her and said, I I don't know what language these people are speaking because I speak English and I can't understand any of these Americans. And so it was just two dialects of English that are not mutually intelligible. So those are, and that was another example of a tricky situation where we didn't really have an interpreter. So we would have to use the um, daughter. So yeah. And then um, sorry, I will let you comment, but I just wanted to share too, before we, I know we're getting towards the end of the podcast, but I wanted to share some research on the bilingual brain too, but whenever, whenever you're That's my <laughs> next one. No, I got to go to, oh, and her name is, it's Dr. Jamila. And I can't think of her last name off the top of my head, but it was at ASHA. She had her patient whose name is Simon and he is a right hemisphere stroke survivor. And um, he did a talk um, about his experience, but he's British by birth and all that came to the United States to work and open a business. But he um, actually was another example of that because he talked about how um, even though he had a right hemisphere disorder, there was barriers to English for him because he's like the English you speak and the English I speak are not the same thing. And so he injected a lot of humor, but some really great points. And he actually got into some um, vocabulary words that we don't have time for tonight, but it was very true and very eye opening because we think, um, you know, someone put in the chat box about dialectal. Hold on. Let me look. What would be a good definition of dialectal density? So um, I would say the quantity of um, phonetic, syntactic, um, semantic features of a dialect that you use in comparison to the mainstream dialect. So thinking about the bilingual brain and how stroke and brain injury impact that, because I think, like you said, that there's some really good research coming out and has come out in the past um, couple of years about that. So I'll kind of let you take that away and, um, and get into that. Yeah. So um, I have some research. This is kind of old research from um, 2008. This is from Ardila and Ramos. And so this um, research study was actually very interesting. It looks at um, the parts of the brain uh, that are activated based on when you have learned a language and where we can expect to see um, impairment. And so to summarize, um, what they found were, were that language deficits in bilingual patients with aphasia varied depending on 
um, a lot of different socio-cultural factors. So things like literacy, um, educational status, et cetera. And that there also tend to be um, aphasia-associated deficits tend to be parallel in your L1, the language that you learned first, and L2, the language that you learned second, when both languages were acquired early in life. So, for example, if you're a simultaneous Spanish and English learner, meaning that you learn both Spanish and English from birth, they saw a correlation between deficits, like word finding deficits were pretty equal in both languages. And then weaknesses tended to be disassociated in the L1 when, and the L2 when the patient acquired the L2 later in life. So um, the patient demonstrates word finding deficits in Spanish and maybe comprehension deficits in English. Um, if they, you know, learn Spanish first and then English later on. And so this is a really, really important piece of information. Um, and that's, it's really important for you to do in your assessment to figure out what, um, the person uses their languages, each language for. Um, so, for example, I have a friend who um, his mother is a native French speaker and she is um, a French professor. And so um, even though she speaks English with her family and informally, French is the language that she uses for work. And so if this patient were to have had a stroke and you only assess her in, in her second language and her English is pretty intact, awesome, great, right? No, because now she's lost her native language that she depends on for her job. So mm -hmm. we really need to make sure that when we do our assessment, we're looking at skills in both languages. And it's going to feel very repetitive because you're literally going to do everything in English and then you're going to do everything in Spanish. But you can end up with unequal um impairment in your two languages. So that's really important. And if you look up that study, um, again, this was, I want to say I might've spelled this person's name, last name wrong, Ardila, A-R-D-I-L-A. I, -L -A. I want to say it might be A-R-D-I-L-L-A. -L -L I will send you this study so that you can post it in the, in the show notes. And Ramos, 2008. It also talks about specific parts of the brain and how even the impairment can also be connected to your memory. So depending on, I don't have this at the top of my head right now, but the parts of your brain that are responsible for short-term memory versus long-term memory, there's also some correlation between, you know, if long-term memory is impacted, the language that you learned first might, you might see more impairment because of that. So it's, it's a very fascinating article. And then one other thing as well that I've noticed in working in hospitals is that sometimes, so we do the BIMS, which is like the COG screener for all of our patients. And I've realized that like sometimes some of the other SLPs will, will say things like, oh, is it, a, do you feel comfortable if I do this assessment with you in English? And of course the patient is going to say yes. And then they say, oh, like, we have, we're concerned for um, cognition. And like, luckily, a couple of times I have been called in to do the actual evaluation, but that doesn't always happen. And so you're asking someone to demonstrate short term memory in their second language. Like if you were to try to do a short term memory assessment with me in Spanish, which is my second language, it would be trash, I would fail, I would be added to someone's caseload for cognition. So this is not a 
you know, we talked about earlier about patient rights declining or accepting. When you're doing that assessment, you've got to assess in both languages and really emphasizing that to the patient. And then really quickly, there's some good evidence with dementia as well with the bilingual brain. So um, we know that being bilingual, there are a lot of cognitive benefits to bilingualism. And Womans et al. 2014 found that um, bilingualism can actually help to delay the onset of Alzheimer's dementia by four to five years. It does not, however, delay the way that the patients move through the stages of um, dementia. It doesn't um, delay the progression. Um, Womans et al. also found that um, lifelong use of two languages may decrease the onset of Alzheimer's and bilingual patients with a family history of um, dementia as opposed to monolingual um, patients. And then um, McCutre et al. 2009 found that loss of the second language along with mild cognitive deficits can indicator of dementia in bilingual patients. So when you, you start losing that language that you learned um, later in life, and, and we also see a lot of times that our patients, as they regress with their dementia to their life when they were younger, they might regress back to that native language. Mm-hmm. And I'll even see sometimes that patients will um, demonstrate greater comprehension in whatever their L1 was. So like if they're a native Spanish speaker, they understand better when I talk to them in Spanish, but don't have the verbal Spanish skills. So they're still answering me back in Spanish. So um, for those patients with dementia, it's really important to try to incorporate staff members that can give them that direct cueing. Um, And then finally, I know we're running over time here. <laughs> okay. So, um with let me make sure I mention everything with dementia. So, um they did another study um in Europe and they found that bilingual patients that were in long-term care had the greatest quality of life when they were provided care and language support from caregivers that spoke their L1. So that's really important. Um even if it's, you know, this you're pairing CNAs who speak the heritage language with those patients, that can make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Um And then one thing that we want to look at specifically with traumatic brain injury um, is looking at the social components of language. And um, so, you know, sometimes we'll see that our patients with traumatic brain injury have um, social deficits. And sometimes that can look like if they are truly a bilingual patient is knowing how to modulate between their two languages and knowing how to code switch. And so sometimes um, it could be decreased awareness that, you know, they are talking to you in Spanish and they are completely unaware that you don't understand what they're saying. So sometimes we need to incorporate direct cueing that, oh, you are speaking to me in Spanish right now. I don't speak Spanish. Can you please restate that in English to help increase that awareness and help to modulate between the two languages? Yeah. And that's a great point because I think we see um, those executive function deficits and that um, impaired inhibition and things like that with our TBI patients. And, and it is, um, again, you know, when you're in Atlanta and I'm in Hampton Roads and we have basically seven cities of a lot of um, military and a lot of people from, you know, we're a port city 
for the most part, we have several, um, like two or three ports here where international ships come in and people get hurt or people are vacationing here and we wind up seeing them on our caseloads because they've had a stroke or they've gotten in an accident or whatever. And so I think all of these things are relevant um, no matter where you live and no matter how much you think that you're not going to encounter this, even if you're in a really rural or isolated area, because I've seen it when I worked in a rural area and I've seen it when I'm working in the bigger, the bigger, um, more metropolitan city um, here. So um, Mm -hmm. Jackie, I just thank you so much for, for joining me tonight. Um, You just, I always get a lot from talking with you privately and definitely um, from working with you on um, another presentation. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here tonight as a guest. Thank you for having me. If you have indicated that you are part of the ASHA registry and entered both your ASHA number and a complete address in your account profile prior to the course completion, we will submit earned CEUs to ASHA. Please allow one to two months from the completion date for your CEUs to be reflected on your ASHA transcript. Thank you for joining us at today's podcast. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.